Well, good evening. Really grateful that you could be here tonight. I do trust that our time together might be used of the Lord, that His Spirit would really pour out God's love in our hearts more and more. I trust that you've been able to really meditate on that truth from this past Lord's Day, uh, even the beginning of this week. I was thinking as we were singing that first hymn uh, of the divine wisdom of God's sending His Son and revealing Him to us, of course, throughout Scripture in anticipation in the Old Testament and then in fulfillment in the New Testament, but particularly in the Gospel accounts, He not only relates Christ's ministry in general terms, Certainly not just in philosophical terms, just kind of propositional statements that would be true, but somewhat lifeless. He, he revealed His Son in everyday life interacting with people like you and me. He's, he's the same today, of course not ministering here in person on earth at this time, but He's ministering to, to people, individual people, like the people that we sang of. And in that same perfect way as the God-man. What a, what a really blessed truth to begin this evening. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew 26. We have for a few weeks, off and on, been considering the matter of temptation And it is my intention tonight that that series be drawn to a conclusion. We've been helped by the Puritan John Owen and his work of temptation written in 1658. And that work has three major sections not equal in length, they kind of progress in their length. The first section deals with what temptation is. We considered that in relation to the last petition of our Lord's teaching us to pray, the disciples' prayer. Secondly, how temptation prevails, and we drew our consideration of that primarily from the very first temptation of human beings in the Garden of Eden, both in an initial temptation which is what we often rightly think of, but also in Adam and Eve's continuing in that temptation and their response to falling into sin. And really the majority of the book is taken up with this third heading of how the Lord might enable us to prevent entering into temptation. So, We are considering this on Wednesday evenings, and it is our tremendous privilege on Wednesday evenings to enter into prayer before the Lord side by side with one another. And so, again, the encouragement to us is this, that we consider this topic of temptation not only in its individual application, and we certainly should not pass that by but also in its collective application, that we grow 
in our desire for and our sense of need to pray with and for one another. To pray in faith, trusting our Father and His wise bestowments, whether that means trial or not. That we pray as enemies of temptation. That we not take a passive or a seemingly and wrong-headed neutral stance against temptation. And that we do so with, with urgency. That we pray for rescue. Deliver us from evil is how you know that petition ends. And we need to remember that temptation is often going to come at us with the force of, of one of two powers. The, the first one that Satan often uses as the deceiver is to, to allure us. He's going to suggest that it's, it's okay, it, it's not going to trouble us, it's not going to be a problem, we're not going to get caught up in it, it's okay, we have an interest in Christ, we shouldn't be phased. So there's an allurement by the deceiver, and then often on its heels, or at other times, there is what he calls a frightment, or affrighting us, there's a, there's a terror. He is the accuser, and this suggestion that at one time, one day, it's really okay, and the next day, it's, it's actually really not okay, we're, we're trapped. Do we really have an interest in Christ after all? And you might remember that we, we pictured up on the screen a, a bridge called today Follies Bridge, built in the place of what has historically been known, was historically known as South Bridge in Oxford. Owen would undoubtedly have been familiar with it. And temptation, the initial temptation in whatever area of life we may come across it, is actually one end of a bridge. It's leading somewhere. Owen isn't, is, is helping us understand that Satan isn't only concerned that we fall into that initial temptation, but that it gets us across to real concern about our life in Christ, our, our assurance, our, our hope of victory. And so this really is serious business. And so we've, we've really just picked and chosen, okay, and, and, and rearranged uh, Owen in this third section on preventing our entrance into temptation. We've considered two of those ways already. The first one was this, to be watchful through prayer, to be watchful with prayer. Keep watching and keep praying, but the, but the watchfulness is, is prayerful, and, and by prayer we can maintain a watchfulness. And secondly, what we considered last week was this idea of storing up provisions, storing up gospel provisions. We need to stockpile the very weapons that God has provided for us to fight and engage in this battle. They're they're God's own armor, Paul says in Ephesians 6. This gospel armor is God's armor. You you look back to the Old Testament references from which Paul draws some of that um, uh, armor imagery. 
It's God's own armor. It's, it's be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Stand. Stand what? Stand in the victory of Christ. And so we use the very armor that God supplies, which also are the very resources that Satan intends to sever from us. And so we need to time and again, day after day, stockpile these gospel provisions. Perhaps this verse came to your mind, Psalm 119.11, your word have I treasured, have I laid up, stored up in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. There's a direct correlation there to what we're storing up in our hearts and our endurance and ability, God-enabled ability to withstand temptation. Paul says in Colossians 2, 3, in Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to live wisely. You want to live for the Lord. Well, it's going to take a stockpiling of the treasures that are in Christ. And we talked just briefly at the end of our time last week that we store up these gospel provisions in a certain way. And really, there's only one way to do that. And that is by faith. A picture, a good picture of this, I think, is in Mark chapter 5. We won't turn there, but Mark 5 says this, verse 25, a woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years, an ongoing health difficulty. If it were in our day, in our church, on, on the prayer sheet, every week for 12 years, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians. There probably are people watching tonight or even here in the room that have had a similar experience in God's providence. And had spent all that she had. Probably was not much, but she had spent all that she had. All of her effort, all of her financial resources for 12 years. And here was the conclusion of all of that. And was not helped at all, the text says. All right, this is a picture of our own efforts in our own strength, according to our own wisdom. We can spend as much time as much money, give as much effort, endure as much difficulty as we possibly can. And the end of all of that, in and of ourselves, is going to be that we are not helped at all. The temptation is going to keep coming and going to keep winning. In fact, she was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And so, verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind Him and she touched His cloak. The simplicity of this is beautiful. She reached out and she touched His cloak for she thought, if I just touch His garments, I will get well. She reached out in faith. By faith. It wasn't impressive. It wasn't even noticed. 
The disciples were were virtually incredulous that Jesus would ask who touched him. How could you figure that out in the press of people like this? But this woman reached out by faith, and she was healed. Dear, Dear people, faith is how we overcome the world. It is the victory. It is the instrument by which God gives us amazing provisions of grace. Do you feel that your flesh has has a magnetism to it? That the magnetic poles of your flesh, they're all oriented the same way. The the draw is, is so strong. It's only going to be the provisions of God's grace. The law is absolutely necessary, but Owen points out the law is not enough. Read Romans 7. The law is not enough to disorient the remnants of our old man in in our flesh, to scramble that, to push back against that. That's not something we can do. We can't fight our flesh with an arm of flesh. And the beauty of this is that faith is, it's instrumental and it's self-emptying. It's the portal through which God gives us grace and engages all of the other spiritual capacities. It's the opposite of works. When we stockpile God's grace, it's not a means of (laughs) self-congratulation. It's the portal for God's strength to be magnified, not because of us, but but in spite of us, and, and by His grace through us. It displays His honor. And so, we, we, we're watchful with prayer. We're storing up gospel provisions. And, and more briefly, tonight, Lord willing, we'll consider three more provisions. Three more provisions that God has given us. Ways to prevent entering into temptation. And the first of those three, or, or the third overall, is this. To look to the duties Christ has commanded. To look to, in other words, don't neglect the duties Christ has commanded. If you turn with me, we'll look briefly at the book of Jude. If you turn to Jude and notice verse 4. The bondservant of Christ, the brother of James, actually, though he does not mention this as a a mark of honor, the the half-brother of our Lord, tells us that he wanted to write that we might earnestly contend for the faith once handed down to the saints, once for all handed down to the saints. That, that, that That's what he was compelled to write about, though there was some other aspect of our common salvation that perhaps evidently was initially on his mind. Why? Well, Verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons, and here are their two characteristics, 
And this has not changed in 20 centuries. The two characteristics of these false teachers who have infiltrated are that they, one, turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and two, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They turn God's grace into licentiousness, and they deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So what do we do about that? What about this kind of temptation? Well, we've been considering that on Lord's Day mornings. These, these two are connected. The, the reason he wrote and the, the danger that these people were in, the temptation that they were experiencing, and the long description of the darkness of this teaching and these teachers all points toward this admonition that we've been considering week after week. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Those those are what Christ has commanded us to do. They're, They're basic duties of the Christian life. But they're directly connected to our capacity to withstand temptation. Owen saw this. He, we talked about this last week. He saw apathy encroaching in the late 1650s in Puritan England. After a decade of the Puritans being in the ascendancy of, of the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, they were, here's his description, once a colony of Puritans whose habitation was in a low place. A colony, a remnant, an outpost, the humble but now they seem to possess mountains. We might say, colloquially, they were riding high. And Owen says, prosperity hath slain the foolish and wounded the wise. He mentions light or empty conversation. Neglect of the Sabbath, what we would call the Lord's Day. Contentment with how things are in society around them. These are the signs of of apathy, uh, of of settling in, of becoming lethargic once they had sort of reached a a pinnacle and seemed 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 to be doing well. It was like Christians who were in a foreign land and had suddenly adopted the manners of their new environment. And that actually had happened a few decades before when some of the separatist forebearers had gone to the Netherlands. They had moved over there to, to escape the, the worldliness, the, 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 the spiritual deadness of England. And what had they found? They had found their children, some of themselves, being pulled into the godless environment of, of the Netherlands. Sometimes in our uncertainty about how to navigate our times and our struggles, we forget about the fundamentals. I don't exactly know how to approach every matter that I face or how to avoid every possible snare. In fact, there is, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but there is a way of, of thinking about snares and temptations that could become a, a paranoia, that that's, that's all that we see. 
Have, have you known exactly what to do with everything that the Lord has brought your way this week? Well, I haven't exactly. But here's the point. I, I do know what Christ has said about the utter necessity day by day of His words. I do know what He has told me to seek first, His kingdom and righteousness. I do know I have been commanded to pray and be thankful in all circumstances. I do know how I must view and treat my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I do know how the Lord has set apart His day, the first day of the week. I do know that I must be a living sacrifice to God and not a conformed reflection of my culture. There are basic realities in the Christian life that I do know. And Owen says, don't neglect. Look to what Christ has commanded. We leave ourselves vulnerable to temptation when we neglect or moderate basic duties that God has given us. Just briefly, another example of this would be in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul tells Timothy that troubling, difficult, perilous times will come when men will love self and money and pleasure rather than God. And that's the world we're living in. And actually, that's a Christendom that we're living among. So what does he say? Well, later in the chapter, verse 14, he says, you, however, by contrast, you, however, how do you you deal with this kind of temptation in this kind of environment? You, however, continue. It seems unremarkable at first. Continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of. These are sacred writings which are not only able to make you wise unto salvation, but able to equip you for every good work by instructing and rebuking and correcting and training us. Do not leave yourself vulnerable to temptation by neglecting or moderating the basic duties in Christ. Number four, not only look to the duties Christ has commanded, but fourthly, look at your own heart. Look at your own heart. There's actually a continuation of that that I'll come to in a moment. So leave a space in in your mind for the rest of this. But look at your own heart. One of the illustrations that Owen uses is is to plug the hole where the water is streaming in. You, you, you know, you might not know where the water is going to come in elsewhere, but you know it's been coming in there. Plug the hole, he says. Don't give place to what has already entangled you. This would be part of what Paul admonishes us to do in Colossians 3.5. I'm going to read it from the ESV. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Mortify. Put to death Whatever is earthly in you. I'll show you an example of someone who did not do this. If you turn with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 19. I 
We'll just look at this very briefly, but a few days ago, I think it was last week in family worship, we came across this example. Chapter 18 of Second Chronicles tells us that Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. And we see throughout chapter 18, we, we see all of the trouble that that brought. And so in chapter 19, after Jehoshaphat returns in safety to his house in Jerusalem, by the Lord's grace, not by his desert, verse 2, Jehu the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked He's referring there to Ahab, of course. And love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord. He does commend him in the next verse, but this was clearly a weakness, clearly a vulnerability, a, a temptation that he had clearly fallen into. Well, if you just follow uh, your scriptures here in the rest of chapter 19 and into 20, there are some remarkable things that the Lord accomplishes through Jehoshaphat. Judah is invaded by Moabites and Ammonites. Judah gathers together, chapter 20, verse 4, to to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat prays. Perhaps one of the more familiar lines of this prayer at the end of verse 12, he says, we, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the Lord answers this prayer. Jehaziel says, the battle, verse 15, is not yours, but God's. The enemies actually destroy themselves. It's a remarkable victory. But notice what verse 35, chapter 20, verse 35 says. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in doing so. He makes the very same kind of alliance with Ahab's son. He did not look at his own heart. He did not learn from his fall into temptation. He was directly rebuked by the Lord through the prophet. The Lord answered his prayer. The Lord strengthened him, continued to enable him, and through him, his people. Proverbs 27, 12 says, The prudent... Interesting that that word prudent is the same word as clever in Genesis 3.1. It's used in a different sense here. The prudent sees danger or sees evil and hides himself. But the simple go on and suffer for it. Are we learning not only from the sin, but from the temptation that led to the sin? 
Sibs says, we learn to stand by falls and get strength by weakness discovered. We learn to stand by falls and get strength by weakness discovered. Weakness with watchfulness will stand when strength with too much confidence fails. Let me say that again. Weakness with watchfulness will stand when strength with too much confidence fails. It's from the bruised reed. Look at your own heart, but I told you there was a little bit more. Look at your own heart, but here's a qualification. Though not excessively. Though not excessively. Look at your heart long enough to be convinced of its utter weakness but not so long that it's all or it's, what pri- it's what's primarily you see. Look at it long enough to be humbled, to be watchful, but not so long that it's all or it's primarily what you see. Robert Murray McShane in September of 1840, wrote to a friend in Belfast. And toward the end of that letter, he said this, quoting Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That sounds like a heart that's very easy prey to temptation. Now, what does McShane say next? He quotes this verse, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's the very next thing he says? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and and then and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. If you know anything about McShane, you know he did not take sin, especially his own sin, lightly. This is not just paint over problems with grace. Yes, look at yourself. Look at your sin. Learn from it. Try to avoid that temptation in the future. But for every time you do that, McShane says, look ten times to Jesus Christ. When we fall and fail, we must not wallow despairingly. That's that's this point. And we must not decide that the basics actually don't work after all. That's the previous point. Another Puritan said, beware lest you trust upon your self-examination rather than upon Christ. Some of us are prone to self-examination. We hear a message like these messages on temptation, and we really really latch on to them, and they become almost engrossing. And we look at our heart, and we see the corrosion within And we look in the past 
and, and, and we're filled with, with vain regret. And yes, we should be humbled. And yes, we should pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil. The Lord would enable us not to go into that same temptation. But we cannot succeed if we only look to ourselves. Or even if we primarily look to ourselves. Yes, look to your own heart, but not excessively. You must look to Jesus Christ. And finally, and I think one of the ways that helps us do that is this. Look to what Christ has commanded. Look at your own heart, though not excessively. And finally, look away from yourself to love other believers. Look away from yourself to love other believers. The Lord did not create us originally, and He certainly is not recreating us in Christ to succeed by absorbing our attention with ourselves. So often we're prone to temptation because we're thinking about ourselves. And how many of our temptations actually come in relation to other people? If you turn with me to one more passage that we'll look at just briefly, and that's the book of Philippians. Very recently, as you know, we worked our way through this letter. In chapter 1, verse 27, there is a foundational imperative. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens, heavenly citizens, of those who have been converted and whose life abides because of, in Christ because of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he picks up there in the next chapter, as you notice in verse 3. In fact, in verse 2, he's talked again about being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, verse 3, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So often, we're ripe for temptation because we're thinking about ourselves. The Holy Spirit comes to us and says, you need to get low. Tall, tall trees really feel the effects of wind. Low shrubs are not impressive, but they are not moved. Get low. Look out for the interests of others. 
This is one way that God in His grace and in His perfect wisdom enables us not to focus on ourselves. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Are you struggling with temptation? Give it to the Lord. Come to your high priest. Stock up provisions of Christ and His gospel. Pray that the Lord would enable you not to enter into temptation. Be watchful, but don't focus on yourself. Serve those around you. Pray for those around you. Confess your fault to one another. Bring yourself low, and you'll strive together for the faith of the gospel. You'll live as true heavenly citizens. Owen talks about how strife and variance and debate among ourselves so often brings us into temptation. How self-full, he calls them self-full principles and self-ish ends bring us into temptation. He says, a selfish soul whose love is turned wholly inwards will never abide in a time of trial. We cannot stand alone. We weren't meant to stand alone. And so, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And perhaps the application of that for us is more than just, yes, it, it helps us in harmony with one another, but, but actually a fervent love for, for one another will have a repulsing effect against our own temptation and sin. There won't be room, as much room, for that temptation to get in. Our Lord taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He would not have taught us to pray that if He wasn't ready, waiting at the door to answer that prayer. This is not a useless exercise. This this is not something that we are consigned to failure. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. Can we pray that for one another? I encourage us one last time to pray, not only for ourselves, but for one another, that we might store up Christ's provisions by faith. That we might be able to to look to our, our basic duties and not grow weary in them and not diminish them. That we might have a, a real understanding of our own heart and yet not one that is excessive, that's fixated. That we might be helped by looking away from ourselves to love those around us. The flesh is certainly weak. And if you read Owen's book, you, you get a strong sense of that. And yet God did not intend for us to fight temptation in our flesh, but by His Spirit. And His Spirit has breathed out these words for us. Let's take them by faith and use them for His glory. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you.
for your magnificent and eternal and transformative love for us. And we believe that you have given us your spirit and you have purchased us with your son's own blood and you willingly hear his petition because it matches your own will that we might not walk according to the flesh but by your spirit. We pray for your help to do so and we pray that we might build one another up. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.